Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your grace and mercy, and yet uh, we are not nearly as grateful as we should be. And uh, so all of our lives should be marked by a, a deep and profound sense of gratitude because all of our lives are covered in grace. All of the gifts that you give us are grace. And so we're grateful for that. We're grateful for the opportunity today to uh, even recognize uh, mothers and what a uh, uh, indispensable part of our lives and part of your plan of redemption they are. And so we pray that you would bless them today. We pray that you would bless us, that we would corporately hear and heed your word. We pray these things because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Welcome to the Parkway Church. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, raise your hand if you have big Mother's Day plans. Let me take off the word big. Raise your hand if you have any Mother's Day plans whatsoever. Okay, great. I hope you do because as we'll see, celebration is an important discipline in the Christian life. In fact, it is absolutely indispensable to the Christian life. I'm not saying that you have to celebrate Mother's Day in order to be a faithful Christian, but I am saying that you have to celebrate if you're going to be a faithful Christian. You can't be a faithful Christian and not live a life that includes celebration and rejoicing and partying and so forth. And so that's what we're actually talking about this morning. We're going to talk about two related disciplines, the disciplines of celebration and also gratitude. If you're listing out spiritual disciplines, those might not make it to your list, but historically those have been considered disciplines, all right? And they overlap. We'll talk about them one at a time. First, we're going to talk about celebration by asking these three questions. Why should we celebrate? What should we celebrate? And then how should we celebrate? And then we'll look at gratitude and we'll answer two questions. Why should we be grateful? And then lastly, practically, how can we cultivate and or demonstrate gratitude? Let's start with celebration and why we should celebrate. And as we do so, I want to go all the way back to the beginning, back to the book of Genesis. So think back to Genesis chapter 1. God creates the world and he describes the world using what adjective? It's good, right? It's even very good. So man and woman live together in harmony, not only with each other, but also with creation and with their creator until an enemy snakes his way into the garden. And remember, what is this serpentine strategy? His strategy is to question the goodness of God. He wants to make it seem like God is holding out on his creatures, like God is some sort of cosmic killjoy, keeping his creatures from flourishing in happiness. And unfortunately, that lie takes root, and the man and the woman eat of the fruit. And that same temptation is alive and well in each of our hearts today. Every single one of us, every single one of us, when we give in to the temptation to sin, we do so because we have determined that we, in essence, are the ones who are able to determine what is good and what is evil, that we know what is good, that we know what is right, that we know what is beautiful, God be damned. That's kind of the idea of sin. We think that God is holding out on us. We think he's running this sort of big pyramid scheme and he's using us or he's abusing us for his own purposes. In essence, we believe what our ancestors believed in the garden, that God is this cosmic killjoy. So it's shocking when we read the Bible, if we actually read the Bible, and we see how often that lie is exposed, that God isn't the destroyer of joy. He is actually the creator and the preserver and the protector of our joy. In fact, we read in the Bible that God is much more concerned with our joy than even we are ourselves. This led to uh, C.S. Lewis famously writing, we've read this a number of times, it's in your notes, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward, and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. 
So when it comes to the question, why should we celebrate? Here's the short answer. Because God is worthy of our celebration and he commands it. God is worthy of our celebration and he commands it. Let me give you a few examples of that. First, we see that God commands these certain feast days and festivals in the Old Testament. Look at Exodus 23, 14. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. Can anyone name any of those feasts, any of the three annual feasts of Judaism? Passover, that's one. The Feast of uh, Booths or Tabernacle, and then the Feast of Weeks, which is also known as Pentecost. So you have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's also known as Passover. The Feast of Weeks, that's also known as Pentecost. And then the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. You have other feasts like Purim, Rosh Hashanah, which is the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Other uh, festivals or feasts are also mentioned, but the three major festivals for Jews were Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. In fact, these were so central to Jewish identity that the Jewish calendar revolved around them. So God commands celebration. Now, does that mean that we today have to keep those same feasts, that we have to practice a Passover, that we have to have a Seder dinner, that we have to practice a Feast of Pentecost, or that we have to go and live in tabernacles or booths on our roofs or something like that? No. Right, the same way that we would say that we're no longer under the law of the tithe, but we still have to give generously, or that we're no longer under the Sabbath, but we still need to rest. Likewise, we're no un- long- longer under the laws of these feasts, but we still have to celebrate. There is a rhythm, there is a principle, there's a pattern there. What we celebrate and how we celebrate might be somewhat different than our Jewish ancestors, but we still have to celebrate nonetheless. We've been talking about that quite a bit in the book of Matthew. The Old Testament presents the shadows of which the New Testament presents the substance. That's part of what's called typology. Typology are these relationships between the Old Testament and Jesus that are not coincidental. They are instead providential. And part of the pattern of typology is the idea of expansion. We've talked about that quite a bit. For instance... Israel was, uh, was promised that they would inherit this tiny sliver of land in the Middle East. But we see that Christ inherits not just this tiny sliver of land, but indeed the entire earth. There is this expansion. Or, or that's the case with, uh, with the celebration as well. Israel celebrates a Sabbath, and that Sabbath is one out of every seven days. But Hebrews is going to describe a perpetual Sabbath rest for God's people. So my point here is simply that if the Old Testament commands celebration, and it does, we shouldn't expect less celebrating in light of the New Testament. We should actually expect more. There's this expansion theme. In fact, God is very serious about our celebrating. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Consider the consequences for failing to celebrate. Look at Numbers 9.13. But if anyone who is clean and is not on a journey fails to keep the Passover, that person shall be cut off from his people. Because he did not bring the Lord's offering at his appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. Now that's really serious. In fact, that's about as serious as it gets. You're cut off from the community. You're cut off from your very identity if you fail to keep God's commands to celebrate. In the Old Testament, it's a sin to not party. All right. Then when Israel is on the cusp of the promised land, they're about to go into the promised land... God is going to pronounce these blessings and curses on the people of Israel. Blessings should they be faithful to the covenant, and curses should they disobey the covenant. And the curses include things like plague and exile and so forth. And notice part of that curse in Deuteronomy 28. All these curses shall come upon you (coughs) and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed because you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever. Notice this line. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. Because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Again, notice that phrase. Because you did not serve Yahweh 
with joyfulness and gladness of heart. In other words, because you just went through the motions, but you didn't actually rejoice, you didn't actually celebrate, there was judgment. God is very serious about your joy. He's so serious that he threatens to destroy you if you refuse to be happy, if you refuse to rejoice, if you refuse to celebrate. Sit in that for a second. God commands you to party, and he threatens to kill you if you refuse to have fun. So God loves celebration. We see celebration throughout the Old Testament. For example, when the ark is brought into Jerusalem, what is David doing? He's celebrating. He's dancing before the Lord. 2 Samuel 6, 5, and David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Or when the temple is built, David's son Solomon threw a party. 1 Kings 8, so Solomon held the feast at that time and all Israel with him, a great assembly from Lebo Hamath to the brook of Egypt before the Lord our God seven days. On the eighth day, he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went to their homes joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness the Lord had shown to David his servant and to Israel his people. Or in the book of Ezra, Ezra and the returned exiles, they celebrate when the temple is rebuilt. Ezra 6.16, and the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Or in Nehemiah, when the, the wall around the city is rebuilt, Nehemiah 12, and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate with, uh, the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And this isn't only an Old Testament thing. Consider how often Jesus uses celebration in his teaching. For example, in Luke 15, he tells three stories each of those stories climax in celebration. The most well-known is probably what is called the parable of the prodigal son. And in it we read this, Luke 15, 22. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. So Jesus speaks of celebration. Jesus even aids in celebration. We see that. He turns water to wine in order to aid in the celebration of this wedding. In fact, it's known that Jesus is a bit of a partier. What's he called by his enemies? When his enemies want to critique Jesus, they call him a glutton and a drunkard. Now, was Jesus a, drug, uh, a glutton or a drunkard? No, of course not. He never once committed gluttony. He never once got drunk. And yet the fact that some people accused him of such things... Mean that he, means that he was known to eat and drink. He was known to have a good time. He wasn't the killer of joy. He's the creator of joy. He's the embodiment of joy, the personification of joy. And Paul speaks of celebrating as well. 1 Corinthians 5.8, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And in the book of Revelation, the end of the Bible at the consummation of all things, when God is rewarding his people, what image does he use to describe that? He uses the image of a great wedding feast. That's interesting. The consummation of all things, when God rewards his people, is described as a wedding reception. Now, depending on what your idea of a wedding reception is, that might or might not communicate a whole lot of joy and celebration. I don't know what kind of wedding reception you're used to, but mine involved dancing and wine. And I even got on stage and sang Don't Stop Believing by Journey. All right. There was a whole lot of celebration, particularly because I was 35. So I'm sure a lot of people out there thought it's never going to happen for him. But if your image of a wedding uh, reception is some sort of like quiet, stuffy sort of affair, it's prim and proper, puritanical, that's really going to distort your understanding of the biblical text. That's going to feed into this idea that God isn't out for your joy, isn't out for your happiness, isn't out for your flourishing. A couple of weeks ago, a couple of pastors were sitting around uh, here at the church. Um, we have, once a month, we have pastors from other churches come in and we 
just talk theology and life and so forth. And so we're, we're sitting around and one of them somewhat sheepishly mentioned that he was thinking about using an illustration from the office. Uh, and then another guy kind of rebuked him for using an illustration from the office. And I said, I don't think there's ever been a time that I didn't use an illustration from the office. <laughs> so I'm, I'm worthy of double rebuke, I guess. So here's my requisite uh, office analogy. If you've seen this episode, it'll make sense. If not, it might, might not. But there's an episode where there's these two competing Christmas parties. They're in, uh, in the office. And one of those parties has a margarita machine, has karaoke. And the other is so laid back, so stuffy. It's run by Angela, if that means anything to you. That when one character walks by, he looks in and he says, when you're done with your meeting... We're having a party in uh, the break room, all right? I say that because that's maybe how some of us think of partying and joy and celebrating and so forth. It's more like a meeting. It's more like this some, something we do begrudgingly. If your idea, though, of a party is quiet, reserved, and somewhat boring, I don't think that you'll resonate with the power of the image of our eternal hope being displayed as a wedding feast. Of all the illustrations possible... God chose one which communicates singing and dancing and rejoicing and gratitude and celebration. So my point is that God loves celebration. Does he love debauchery? Does he love drunkenness? Of course not. But the proper response to the abuse of the gifts isn't to just ignore the gift, but rather to steward it appropriately. So why should you celebrate? Because God is worthy of it. He commands it. And it, uh, uh, he's glorified by our joy. He's given us good gifts that we should receive with happiness and gladness. So what should we celebrate? I don't know if anyone here grew up as a Jehovah's Witness or grew up around Jehovah's Witnesses. The Jehovah's Witness uh, religion isn't a Christian denomination. It's actually a non-Christian cult. We did an entire uh, theological equipping on that a couple of years back. They don't believe in the deity of Jesus for one thing. That's the main problem with it. But another one of the things that's really distinct about Jehovah's Witnesses is that, is that one of their uh, beliefs is that you can't celebrate any holiday or any event or, or anything like that except for Jesus. Any, any event, any holiday uh, that's not built on Jesus dishonors God. That includes Mother's Day and Father's Day and birthdays and anniversaries and Valentine's and so forth. So you would think... They would all save it up and they would really celebrate Christmas and Easter since those are about Jesus, but they don't actually. Those have pagan origins as well, so those are out. By the way, we've done a whole blog on the idea of pagan origins for holidays. Feel free to check that out. Now, no Orthodox Christian denomination goes as far as the cult of Jehovah's Witnesses. No Christian denomination goes so far as to prohibit Christmas and Easter Nevertheless, occasionally you will find a softer version of that same kind of suspicion about celebration. You'll meet a lot of Christians who don't like to celebrate. They don't like to celebrate various things. And that's officially, or that typically comes out in at least two different ways. The first is through this semblance of piety. For example, you might hear someone say that they don't celebrate Christmas. Or you might hear someone say they don't give gifts for Christmas because Christmas is about God and not gifts. Now, is it true that Christmas is about God? Of course it is. But does that mean it's not also about gifts? No. In fact, the meaning of Christmas is what? That God gives a gift. What are we celebrating in Christmas? We're celebrating the reality that God gave the gift of his son. So Christmas actually is about gifts. That's what's called a false dichotomy. Christmas is about God, not gifts is a false dichotomy. Those aren't mutually exclusive. Maybe the way that we celebrate and, uh, and honor God is through giving gifts. Maybe that's how we demonstrate to our kids that God is a good father who gives good gifts. By mirroring that to them. Has Christmas been secularized? Yes. Has it been commercialized? Yes. But does that mean that we can't redeem it? Of course not. Am I saying that you have to give gifts for Christmas? No. Am I saying that you must celebrate Christmas? No. Scripture doesn't command either. But I, am, but I am saying there is nothing inherently wrong with celebrating Christmas or inherently wrong with giving gifts. There's nothing in Scripture that suggests that that's somehow forbidden or disapproved of. 
But that's one way that Christians can kind of rob ourselves of these opportunities to celebrate by indulging in this sort of hyper-pietistic, holier-than-thou attitude. A second way that I think is really common among Christians is, is this misunderstanding of humi- uh, humility. Many of you have been here before where we've done a, a time of prayer at the end of our worship service for people who are suffering from some sort of uh, various illness. We might even be doing something like that today or, or next week. We first began to do those about five years ago. And I remember asking a couple of people who were members at the time, they're no longer here, but people who had cancer or some other serious illness, and we said, hey, is it all right if we have you stand up and we just want to pray for you? And a number of them said things like, no, don't include me. I don't want to be a bother. And we might hear that. We might say, okay, that sounds humble. You don't want to burden the body. But I don't think it actually is. In fact, I think that often demonstrates an underlying pride. Think about what you're saying in that moment. I don't want to be served. I don't want others to know that I'm in need. I don't want others to be able to give me anything. I want to be the one who prays for others and gives to others. I see the same thing, the same sort of underlying idea, oftentimes, when it comes to celebration. For, for instance, the person who doesn't want to make a fuss out of their birthday, or doesn't want to make a fuss out of their anniversary, or doesn't want to make a fuss when they get a promotion, or whatever it might be, or doesn't want to make a fuss whenever they graduate, that person might, and I stress might because there are other things that could be going on, but that person might be doing so out of a heart that's unwilling to allow others to serve them or give to them. In other words, there might actually be some underlying pride there. Am I saying that you have to celebrate your birthday or your anniversary? Of course not. But, am I consider, uh, but, I am, uh, but I am saying that you should consider your motivations for not wanting to do so. So when it comes to what should we celebrate, let me give you a few helpful hints. The first one is, I think that you should celebrate significant milestones. We see that in Israel's history. There are these annual events. We talked about we're no longer under the same prescription, but we still should view it as a principle and pattern for us to, uh, to embody or to exemplify. So I think it's entirely appropriate for us to celebrate birthdays and anniversaries and so forth. The guys here on staff make fun of me because I have things... I have all kinds of anniversaries on my, uh, on my calendar. Anniversaries of vacations or you know, various people's birthdays or whatever it might be. But I do so because it gives me an opportunity to practice gratitude. It's an opportunity for me to reach out and say, hey, remember when we did this? That was great. And then we can uh, remember and, and, uh, and, and be grateful. In the Old Testament, Israel would often do things like put up what are called memorial stones, And those memorial stones would be a sign of God's grace so that whenever they would pass by those stones, they would remember God's provision. In fact, the word Ebenezer, like an Ebenezer Scrooge, or when we sing the song, here I raise my Ebenezer. That word Ebenezer means stone of help. That's what it means in Hebrew. 1 Samuel 7, 12, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Ebenezer, stone of help. So likewise, I would encourage you to raise up metaphorical memorial stones in your life. Put things on your calendar, hang pictures on the wall, whatever it might be, to bring to remembrance God's provision and mercy in your life. So celebrate significant milestones. Second, celebrate significant religious observations. All right, again, we're no longer under the law that we have to celebrate Passover or Pentecost or whatever it might be. But that is a principle for us. So I would encourage you, celebrate Easter. Celebrate Christmas. If you want to have different traditions in how you celebrate it, that's fine. But in addition to that, celebrate baptisms. Celebrate communion each week. Those are celebrations. Those are opportunities for you to remember and to rejoice, to see a sign of God's faithfulness and to rejoice. I think it's good and wise to not only celebrate these personal milestones, but also these corporate seasons of celebration like Christmas and Easter and baptisms and so forth. Next, I would say to celebrate spontaneous opportunities for Thanksgiving. Most of the previous things that we talked about are somewhat predictable, right? Christmas comes every year the same time. Easter comes every year the same season. Your birthday comes the same day. All of those kinds of things. Those are on our calendars, 
But I'm talking about other things, right? Jesus tells a couple of parables in Luke 15 before he tells the parable of the prodigal son. And those parables in Luke 15 are about people losing something and then finding it. And what's interesting is that they celebrate as a result. That's what I mean here. So when your kid loses a tooth or when you get a promotion or when you get a new job or when you graduate high school or whatever it might be, those are opportunities to give thanks and thus opportunities to celebrate. All of that is a blessing. Those things don't just happen by natural law. Those things happen as a result of God's grace because everything is God's grace and none of it is deserved. So everything is of grace and thus worthy of our recognizing. So that's what you should celebrate. If you want a really concise way of thinking about it, what should you celebrate? Well, every good and perfect gift is from God and thus worthy of celebrating to some extent. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that you have to throw a party every single day or every single week or whatever it might be. So let's talk about how we should celebrate. There's a lot that we could say here. For example, it's worth mentioning that there are ways that you can't celebrate. All right, Early Christians loved to party, but so did pagans. And pagans were known for really wild parties. That's why Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4.3, The time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So however you celebrate, it can't involve sin. Is drinking a sin? No, but drunkenness is. Is eating good food a sin? No, but gluttony is. So your celebration can involve sin, but beyond that, the door is pretty wide open. If you're into singing, get a karaoke machine. If you want some wine, go for it. If you like dancing, that's okay. Are there forms of dancing that are inappropriate in certain contexts? I think so. It doesn't mean you have to be like John Lithgow's character in Footloose, just ban dancing entirely. Again, remember, God is not a killer of your joy. God is not against your joy. God created the idea of celebrating. And he commands that you do it. God wants you to celebrate. He wants you to party, not sinfully, but worshipfully. Part of the meaning of celebration is that things that you normally don't do, you do occasionally. That was the rhythm of the Old Testament celebration. When they would celebrate the Passover, they would eat a meal that was distinct from all the other meals that they would eat the rest of the year. They would eat and they would drink and they would dance and they would sing in a way that was atypical in order to demonstrate that there was a distinction that was to be made among those days. For instance, I've mentioned this before, but a buddy and I like sushi, but I'm a quarter Japanese, so it's got to be good sushi, all right? If your sushi is affordable, it isn't up to my standards, all right? I'm too picky to eat bad sushi, and I'm too cheap to buy good sushi. So all year long, I just save gift cards, once a year, my buddy and his wife and Casey and I will double date to a place called Nobu down in Dallas. We'll spend much more money than I would ever care to spend on a dinner. Is that normal for us? No, it happens once a year. But it's more than a dinner. It's a symbol of friendship. It's a symbol of tradition. It's an opportunity for us to reflect upon the year and our friendship and all those kinds of things. It's an opportunity to laugh and eat good food and talk about God's provision and mercy in our lives and in our families. So every birthday and every Christmas... I give this guy a gift card. It's actually Zach. Some of you guys know him. I give him a gift card to Nobu. He does the same for me. And then we use those to celebrate uh, once a year. That's an example of what I mean. Celebrating means that you're consecrating something. You're marking it apart as something distinct. That's what consecrate means, to set it apart as something that's different. Normally, I'm pretty cheap when it comes to food. But once or twice a year, I want to be different. The same way that Israel would be different once or twice or three times a year on various feast days. In Jewish tradition, you might be familiar with this, but they would have a Passover or Seder dinner. And in that dinner, it would be traditional for a child to ask, why is this meal different from other meals? That's actually kind of how the meal begins. A child would ask this question and the father would answer. And he would give kind of the story. The reason that this meal is different, the reason that you're not eating any leaven and the reason that you're eating bitter herbs and all of these sorts of things is because this day is different. So that's what I'm getting at here. I think a healthy rhythm of life involves having some days and some meals that break the mold in order to communicate that something is distinct. The problem, though, with teaching a group this size is that in this room with this many people, we, pro we probably have people all over the map. 
Some of you might kind of do this thing a little too often. What should be distinct, what should be unique, is just kind of the way that you live. Every day is Christmas for you. Every meal is Nobu for you. But others are on the opposite end of the spectrum, and they never spin. They never celebrate. They never do anything distinct. I don't think never is the best option. I don't think always is the best option. What is the best option? Well, something in between. There's no law there. Instead, there's wisdom. And if we're honest, we often hate that. We want people, tell us what to do. Tell me the exact number of days that I need to go out. Tell me the exact number of days that I need to take my wife out. Tell me the exact number of days that I need to throw a party. There's just a little legalist in all of us. We don't want to walk by faith and walk by wisdom. But let me give you a few practical tips. Hopefully these help. Number one, I think you should schedule times to celebrate. I think you should put it on the calendar and you should make plans to party. Number two, in addition to scheduling times to celebrate, I think you should also have spontaneous celebration. Sometimes it needs to be on the calendar, but sometimes the circumstances demand a degree of spontaneity. If you get a new job, celebrate that day or the next day. If you finish cancer treatment, that's worthy of celebration. If you find out you're pregnant, that's worthy of celebration. Those are gifts. God is worthy of your rejoicing in them. Number three, I'd encourage you to celebrate in community. Invite others to share in your joy. I've mentioned this account before, but in Luke 15, Jesus tells this story. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. I've always been struck by the fact that she calls together her friends and neighbors to share in her joy. I don't think we as a culture do a good job of weeping with those who weep or with rejoicing with those who rejoice. But we should. We should celebrate together. There's an episode of Parks and Rec where Ron Swanson is so afraid that Leslie Nope is going to invite others into his birthday. He doesn't tell anybody when his birthday is, but he, I think he told Baskin Robbins or something like that, and she got it uh, from that. So the whole episode, he's afraid she's going to throw this huge party and others are going to be invited. And at the end, she puts him in a room, she gives him some scotch or something, and a steak, and uh, she puts on the Bridge on the River Kwai, I think. And, uh, and that's his party. He just wants to celebrate alone. And that's, I think, for some of us, maybe that is our tendency. We're an introvert. I'm an introvert. That's a good thing. That doesn't mean you have to always celebrate in the, the midst of others, but you should Sometimes celebrate in the context of community. Notice that's how Israel celebrates, right? You don't celebrate the Passover by yourself. You celebrate it with your family and with the town and with the larger nation. And then fifth, remember what you are celebrating. At the end of the day, if the celebration of your promotion just becomes about your job or just becomes about more money and that's it, you're really only halfway there, right? Celebration should ultimately resound in worship. We talked about worship last week, which should be all of life. All of your life, you're either worshiping or committing idolatry. So celebration should be a response of, uh, of gratitude for grace. The grace of turning one year older. The grace of celebrating one more year of marriage. The grace of graduating college, whatever it might be. You're not promised that grace. God hasn't pro- promised you one more year. God hasn't promised you a promotion. When you get those things, that's an opportunity for you to rejoice. So celebrating is a means of demonstrating gratitude. So let's talk about gratitude. Imagine how you feel each time you get a paycheck. You get paid every two weeks or you get paid on the 15th and the 1st or whatever it might be. And you might not feel anything whenever you get a paycheck, right? You probably have direct deposit You have direct deposit, so you don't ever see that money. You might not even think about that money. Now imagine that you were to go into your office tomorrow and your boss were to say to you, you know what? You're a great employee. We love having you as an employee. We want to keep you here a long time. So we have a gift for you. They give you a bonus that's equivalent to your annual salary. Now imagine how you're feeling in that moment. 
What are you thinking? On a normal payday, you get paid and you call home all excited. You say, hey, babe, you'll never guess what happened. I got paid my salary. No, you don't do that. But what if you were to get an extra 50000 or 100000 I think that would be a lot different. I think there would be a phone call that would be made there. I think that distinction marks how a lot of Christians live their lives. Normally, we don't feel grateful. But occasionally something crazy happens. We narrowly avoid getting hit by a semi on the, uh, the interstate. Our cancer is in remission, whatever it might be. In those moments, we feel gratitude, but in normal situations, we might not. We express it, maybe even think about it a bit more around the holidays, Thanksgiving or something like that. But most of the time, we kind of live with this dull apathy. The problem with that is that it's a fundamental misunderstanding of grace and gratitude. When you realize what the Bible says, that every good and perfect gift is from above, every blessing, every benefit in your life is grace, when you realize that, it should cause worship. It should cause celebration. It should cause gratitude. When you take a breath, that's grace. That's not something that you're promised. That's not just the normal anatomical rhythm of your body. That is God preserving your life. When your heart beats, that is grace. Your ability to hear or taste or see, that's grace. If you have any friends or you have any family, that's grace. If you're a part of a church, that's grace. If you have a job, that's grace. If you have a house or an apartment, that's grace. If you have clothes, that's grace. If you have food, that's grace. Everything that we have is God's grace to us. And I think all of us in this room are smart enough, we've come to church enough, we've heard this enough that cognitively at least, we know that. Yet oftentimes what we know up here doesn't flood our hearts. It doesn't erupt into gratitude and worship, but it should. Why should it? Because God is worthy of our gratitude. The same way that God is worthy of our celebration, he's worthy of our gratitude, and he demands our gratitude. One of the fundamental patterns of the events of the book of Exodus is that God is pouring out his sovereign grace on his people. He's pouring out provision on his people. And what is their continual response? Grumbling, mumbling, murmuring, complaining. Let's look at a few examples. Exodus 15, Exodus 15, 24. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Chapter 16. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. And we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to eat, to kill this whole assembly with hunger. God has just ransomed them from the strongest nation on the earth. And they're like, we want meat pots. I don't even know what a meat pot is. All right. Or later, uh, elsewhere in the book, it says, we had leeks and we had melons and cucumbers. You're like, that's not even the greatest food. Then look one chapter later, Exodus 17. Notice a pattern, Exodus 15, Exodus 16, Exodus 17. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Then you digress in the book. You have the giving of the law in the latter half of Exodus and Leviticus. And then when the narrative picks up again in the book of Numbers... You would think, maybe Israel has learned its lesson, but it hasn't. Numbers 14, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? If you remember the story, that's when they are cursed with wilderness wandering. So if you're looking for a pattern in the Old Testament... The pattern is as God is showering his people with grace and mercy and they're responding by complaining and murmuring. 
It isn't just an Old Testament issue. Notice the same language used in Jesus' day, Luke 5.30. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Or Luke 15, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. By the way, that's the context for those three stories that I've mentioned in Luke 15 about celebrating, kind of climaxing in the parable of the prodigal son. John 6, 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Notice how all of the, those grumbling examples, all of them have to do with eating to some extent. I think the authors are cluing us in. They're doing the exact same thing. What were all of the stories in Exodus and Numbers that we read? They were all about somehow eating or drinking. I think they're cluing us in that they are walking in the same steps as their forefathers. And this isn't just an Israel thing. This isn't something we can just look and say, oh yeah, those Jews did that, but not us Gentiles. This is a universal condition. Speaking of the universality and pervasiveness of sin, Paul writes this in Romans 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, when, God, uh, when Paul is summarizing the fundamental problem of mankind, he includes the idea that, they, that we don't honor God. We don't give him thanks, which is why Paul will also write in Philippians 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And why James will write in James 5, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. God is fundamentally displeased by our complaining and our murmuring and our mumbling What is second nature to us, and I think if we're all honest in this room, this is second nature to us, to complain. What is second nature to us is odious to God. Why is God so displeased? Because grumbling and mumbling isn't just a symptom of a dissatisfied heart, but it's this dissatisfied heart that also corresponds to and mirrors the original sin. When we complain, When we grumble, what are we saying in that moment? We're saying, God is withholding something from me. God is withholding something from me that would bring me life and would bring me joy. The same way that Adam and Eve thought that the fruit would bring them life and joy, and yet God has withheld it. So our our ingratitude is a reflection of a lack of faith. We don't believe that God is good. We don't believe that God is for us. It's a reflection of our pride. We think that we know better, that we think we are better. So if you want to know why you should be grateful, the answer is this, because we have experienced grace upon grace upon grace, and God is worthy of our appreciation. We glorify God in our gratitude, but we steal what is his when we withhold our appreciation. In those moments, we glorify ourselves. We glorify the gift rather than the giver. To use another phrase from Romans 1, we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So the more that we understand grace, the more that we'll experience and express gratitude. On the other hand, the more that we dilute grace, the more that we turn grace into some sort of transactional thing between us and God, we do our part and God does his. The more we mix grace with a little bit of our own effort, the less that we make of grace, the less that we think of grace, the less grateful we will be. So how can we cultivate and or demonstrate Gratitude will end with these things. One of the things we've been talking about all semester is the idea that a lot of discipleship is formed by habit. We read a quote by Michael Horton earlier this semester who says that character is largely a bundle of habits. We all have habits. When you think of the word habit, that word can have positive connotations or negative connotations. I think when most of us think of the word habit, We tend to think of negative connotations. We think of habits like biting our nails or procrastinating or smoking cigarettes or other things that generally aren't wise or healthy. That's how we tend to think of the word habits. But not all habits are actually bad. In fact, discipleship is is often about replacing negative habits with positive habits. It's part of how we are sanctified is because we are habituating ourselves into good habits. Patterns of righteousness. You generally find that if you will act rightly in one situation, it becomes easier to act rightly in the next and vice versa. If you 
open that page on your computer that you shouldn't go to, it's easier to do it the next time. But that takes effort to resist that. It takes struggle. It takes discipline. All right? We tend to use that word, discipline, also with negative connotations. It's unpleasant. It's uncomfortable. Hebrews 12, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Or 1 Timothy 4, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. That word for train is gymnazo, from which we get the word gymnasium or gymnast. As an athlete disciplines his or her body for physical competition, so the Bible has said that we are to discipline ourselves for the sake of holiness. Notice you don't just drift into it. If you want to run longer distances, you can't just lay around all day. Your mile time is going to increase. Your bench press is going to decrease if you allow your muscles to atrophy. So you have to train yourself to overcome that inertia. And the same is true when it comes to spiritual disciplines. The same is true when it comes to sanctification. Gratitude and celebration are disciplines. You have to discipline yourself in these areas. You don't just drift into it. It's not natural because your nature is broken. It's bent. You've been given a new nature, but even that you have to train. You have to crucify the old man. So here are some ways that I think that you can cultivate and demonstrate gratitude. Ways that you can practice both mortification, where you put to death the flesh, and vivification, where you make alive the things of the Spirit. Number one is to learn good theology. In particular, when you learn how utterly sinful you are, And how utterly loving God is. If you want the fires of your gratitude to burn, you have to feed them with good theology. Man-centered theology is going to decrease your appreciation. It's going to decrease your your worship. Why are we so passionate about Reformed theology? Because in Reformed theology, the ceiling for your worship increases. Because the depths of your depravity become more manifest, which shows how far God has actually lifted you. So learn good theology. Second, disciple your kids into gratitude. At the end of the day, you can't actually change your kids' hearts, but you can change their actions. And by changing their actions, you can actually begin to reorient their affections. Tim showed that last week. I don't know if you were here for, the, I think it was during the Q&A, but he had everybody smile and then look at each other. And then when we smile, he shows, it actually helps us to change our feelings. We actually feel more happy. I say that in order to encourage you. Disciple your kids into gratitude. Disciple your kids into learning how to celebrate appropriately. Make them say please and thank you. This isn't just moralism. There's a reason behind that. Teach your kids how to give away some of their money as a recognition that everything is grace. Have your kids write thank you notes, whatever it might be. Train them to express gratitude in the hopes that the Spirit will help them to experience gratitude. Number three, speaking of which... The next point, express gratitude even if you don't feel it. There's this strange form of Christianity that says, I don't, if, I don't, if I don't feel like doing something, I shouldn't do it because I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't feel like going to church, so I shouldn't because God doesn't want me to be a hypocrite. We've talked about that before. That begrudging obedience isn't ideal, but it's better than actual disobedience. My point is, if celebration and gratitude are disciplines, and they are, then we acknowledge They aren't always spontaneous. They involve an act of the will, act of the will, and we need to train our wills. It means we need to express gratitude even if we don't feel it. We need to celebrate even if we don't feel it. Number four, see through the lives of culture. All right, society, culture trains us to be ungrateful and discontented. That's kind of the role of advertising. That's the whole point. If you aren't satisfied with your marriage, Get a divorce. If you aren't satisfied with your body, get plastic surgery. If you aren't content with your gender, change it. Just think of how strange it is in our culture. If you were to hear someone say, you know what? I really love the way I look. If you're talking to someone and they say, you know what? I make plenty of money. I really love how, you know, my salary. We hear that and we think that kind of sounds narcissistic. If we were to hear someone say, I'm really content with the way things are. We've been trained to think that we shouldn't be grateful for what we have, but rather to envy what we don't. That's our culture. That's the underlying lie of the enemy. 
Remember the story of Adam and Eve. They're, they have this entire garden of provision. This entire garden full of fruits and good food. And yet they're locked into one tree. So in order to cultivate gratitude, it helps to know the schemes of the enemy. And one of the schemes of the enemy is to take our focus off of all that we have and fix it on that one or two things that we don't have. You can't resist drift if you don't know in which direction you're drifting. That's the way that culture and the enemy is pushing you. Number five, spend more time thinking about what you do have than what you don't. That's related to what we just talked about. So list it out. Talk about it around the dinner table, not just on Thanksgiving, but regularly. Make that a regular rhythm of life. To not just ask God for things, but to thank him. G.K. Chesterton wrote, You say grace before meals, all right. But I say grace before the concert and the opera. And grace before the play and the pantomime. And grace before I open a book. And grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing. And grace before I dip the pen in the ink. And then six, lastly, repent of grumbling. Realize that you're complaining, that you're grumbling, that you're ingratitude. Obviously, can't coexist with gratitude. Grumbling keeps your focus on yourself, what you have or what you don't have. Gratitude turns your eyes to God and who he is and what he has done. So where you see evidences in your life of complaining, of grumbling, of mumbling, of those sorts of things, then repent. Don't just think in that moment, I'm just letting off a little steam playing with fire in that moment. You're exhibiting the exact same heart that Israel does in the wilderness when God says, you won't enter into my land with that kind of heart. So repent of it. There is mercy. There's grace to be found. There's more that could be said about cultivating gratitude, celebrating grace. That's at least a start. Let's pray, and then we'll do some uh, Q&A. Father, your, your word says that we should rejoice always. We should pray without ceasing that we should give thanks in all circumstances. That this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for us. And so I pray that that would mark our lives, that we would be a people who deeply rejoice and a people who actually express and experience deep and abounding gratitude. And as a result of that, we'd be a people who pray often. And so... Pray that you would help us. We love you. We want to love you more. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.